laughed. They were fantastic. They laughed when they should have laughed. They clapped when they should have clapped. And uh, they said amen when they should have said amen. And I was driving home in the car and uh, my daughter came and she said, that was good, but wait till you get to Mansfield, Dad. So I'm expecting good things from you tonight. Okay. So uh, we are, uh, we're going to follow on uh, with the God First series. Matthew 6.33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. And Christian shared over the last two uh, weeks about putting God first. If you remember when you try and squeeze in God after you put all that stuff in your life, it just doesn't fit. But when you put God first... And all that stuff is added. What a brilliant illustration that is. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. How we can put God first, then all that stuff fits neatly into place. And I want to concentrate just on one aspect. Connecting. Connecting. How if we connect with God first, all our other connections with people, our friends our work colleagues, our family, our church family fit neatly together. And when Phil asked me um, to share about this, I really started to think about, well, how do we connect with each other? How do people connect? How do people influence our lives? And at what age do we actually connect? And what age do people influence us? So last week, uh, whilst the, after the service, I did a quick straw poll around some of our young people. I went around asking them, who, who are your heroes? Who do you look up to? Are the sporting heroes or film stars or, you know, who do you, who do you connect with? And it was quite interesting. One said, uh, Wonder Woman. Well, that's, that's not bad, is it? Somebody else said, Spider-Man. One said, Tom Cruise. Film star. One said Chris Paul, basketball player, we know who that is, don't we? Two girls said Joey Essex. Come on. Joey Essex. Oh, come on. Who's influencing you? And sadly, four people said, I don't know. I've got no idea. I've not thought about it. And I thought, well, when... If somebody asked me that question when I I was their age, I knew what I would have said straight away. Because back in the good old days, before we had mobile phones, before we had computers, before we had iPads and uh, television and Netflix and things like that, all we had was Saturday morning cinema. And hundreds of kids used to flock to this building right here, Saturday morning. And I remember coming in with my mates and I lived on Bowl Street at Mansfield, terraced housing. We weren't very rich and we used to get together with a, and we used to club together to pay for somebody to come into the pictures. And then that, <laughs> that fire door right up at there, that top exit, wanted to sneak in. Well, nobody would it, open it and let everybody else in. We'd all, ru- we'd all rush in. And it was naughty, but that's what, what we did in those days. Because we wanted to see the next film. Cannonball Express, Champion the Wonder Horse, and my favourite, The Lone Ranger. I used to love The Lone Ranger. And even The Lone Ranger. Lone, there's a, a 
clue there, isn't there? The Lone Ranger, even he connected with somebody. His best buddy, Tonto, you've got it. Before I go any further, can I just share my favourite Lone Ranger joke? You'll like this, Carl. You ready? If you heard it this morning, it's funnier the second time you hear it. All right. <coughs> so, so, here's the Lone Ranger and Tonto. They go galloping into Fort Laramie, shouting, close the gates, close the gates, the Indians are attacking. And they stream to a halt on their horse and they jump off, they close the gates, and the commanding officer comes out and says, what is it, Lone Ranger? What's happening? And he said, the Indians are attacking, they're about to attack. And Tonto jumps off his horse, puts his ear to the floor, and lays on the floor like that. And he says, 500 Apache, 300 on white horses, 200 on black horses, 200 with lance and spear, 300 with Winchester rifles. And the commanding officer says, you can tell all that just by putting your ear to the ground. He says, no, I can see you under the gapping gate there. <laughs> well, my... Got nothing to do with me preaching, that hasn't, but I, I just love that story. That, that's my favourite Lone Ranger story. Well, my dad was an avid cowboy uh, film buff. He used to love cowboy films. And I used to watch it with him. And, of course, that must have influenced me at a young age. And perhaps we don't realise what we watch influences. And I can remember watching Randolph Scott. Do you remember Randolph Scott? Hey, Audie Murphy. And, of course, my favourite... John Wayne, Big John, the Duke. And my favourite film was uh, True Grit, a one-eyed, overweight marshal. Oh, what a brilliant cowboy that was. And the cowboy films were, were so simple, really, because the stories were all the same, really. And when you boiled it down, there was a bad man who wanted to pinch all the cattle in the land and the beautiful girl, and there was the good guy who came and wanted to take the land off the bad guy and, and, the, and the ranch and the cattle and win the beautiful girl. And they used to have a bit of a shamozzle, a bit of a do-do, and then the good guy always won. And everybody went home happy, apart from the bad guy, of course. And I remember coming down to, the, to this picture scene, Lone Ranger, with all my friends, and then on the way home, we'd go out and gallop back. <laughs> and, you know... When we were watching the, those, those cowboy films, perhaps they did influence me. I've got some, um, got some photographs I want to show you. Can we have the first photograph up, uh, please? There I am. <laughs> I don't know how old I, I must be there, but I've got my cowboy hat on with my sheriff's badge. And the next one, please. There I am, a little bit older, riding across the plains of Oklahoma. I've got my blazer on, but believe it or not, I did have a sheriff's badge on my blazer. It wasn't Oklahoma, I think it was Yarmouth, but that's where, in my mind, it was Oklahoma. And the next one, please. And there I am on the stagecoach, on the wagon train. Again, I've got my cowboy. I used to have a cowboy hat every time I went on holiday with the sheriff's badge on. I don't know why, but it was important to have a sheriff's badge on. The next one, please. And there I am. I've been promoted this time because that's a... United States Marshal Badge. And that's on my... That haircut, believe it or not, was the haircut of the day. I mean, that was, you know... Can you remember that, Phil? Philip, can you remember that haircut? <laughs> and, 
And, and the, uh, the sweater there, you know, that's what my mum used to knit me every Christmas. I'm glad it's not in colour because it was a horrible colour. But, uh, so all these cherished badges and things, martial badges, it must have had some influence on me because the next photo, there I am, a six, six, 16 and a half year old, 30 inch waist, what went wrong? Um, 16 year old um, police cadet. And then the next one, that's where I uh, finally became a police cadet. I don't know if you can, can you see me? Can you, have you found me? I'll tell you where I am in a minute. Oh, second from the uh, left, look there. In, second row. And that was 19, uh, I was 19, no, 18 and a half. 18 and a half year old. I was a police officer pounding the beat at Newark on Trent. And I thought I knew everything. 18 and a half. I realised I knew very little. But I suppose what you could argue is, after watching all these cowboy films, perhaps something did have an influence on me. Perhaps I connected with something. Perhaps I was just destined to be a lawman. So let me ask you this very important question. What are you watching? Who and what are you connecting with? How do they influence you? How can we connect with God in a deeper and more intentional, purposeful level? Well, the Bible is a great way of connecting with God. When we read his word, it helps us to connect and stay connected with God. Jesus connected with a lot of people. He healed, must have healed hundreds, if not thousands of people. He connected with 5,000 people with a packed lunch. But he also connected with people on a deeper level. He took 12 young men and connected with them at a deeper level. And in particular, he took some of those 12 and even went deeper with those. And this evening, I want to concentrate just for a few moments on the connection that Jesus had with one of his disciples called Simon. Simon Peter. And we're going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. And Liz, my wife, is going to read this out for us. So just listen and look at these words. Matthew 16, verses 13 to 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. What a great connection this is. What a great conversation this is. 
Jesus connecting with Peter to build his church. The Son of God connecting with a young, impetuous, impatient, headstrong young man. Simon, who received this revelation from God. And Jesus, the name above all names, changes Simon's name. He now renames him. He was called Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar meaning son of. Simon, son of Jonah. He changes his name. And he calls him Peter. Now, I just need to get into the little... Bit. Don't, don't switch off. I need to get into the little Greek word here. Of course, most of the Bible was written in Greek. And sometimes it's important to get to the root word. Now, the root word is Petros, Peter. Petros. And it means stone. And Jesus said, you are Petros. Now, the, the, the root word in Greek is a masculine noun. And it denotes a small wobbly and easily movable stone, something that you could fit in your hand and throw away. Fancy calling somebody that. Yet, just how wobbly and easily movable that stone actually is, Peter readily demonstrates by forwarding the daftest of proposals at times, by jumping overboard to walk on water and leaving his faith in the boat, by lopping a guard's ear off when they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, letting his anger take over. And ultimately by denying that he was ever even associated with Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed and arrested. Wow. So Jesus is saying to Peter, Petros, a small wobbly stone, I am going to use you. Then it says, and on this stone. Now the root word for that is Petra, it's a feminine noun, which denotes a firm foundation. A Petra is used to build houses on, foundation stone, unmovable. So what, what Jesus is saying here, I'm going to build my church. Basically saying, I'm going to take your wobbly faith, Peter, and I'm going to place it on this revelation from God that God has given you, that I am the Son of God, that firm foundation. Now, that gives me great encouragement because I can identify with Peter. I can really identify with Peter very easily because sometimes my faith is so small and so wobbly and easily disposed of, really. But when you put God first in your life, your wobbly faith rests on the solid foundation stone that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this is what Jesus does and says to Peter, I'm going to build my church on that. I'm going to use the people who have got wobbly faith at times. But as long as it's secured on the foundation stone of who I am, I will build my church. Let's just uh, carry on reading. Let's read verses 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are an offense to me. For you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Wow. 
Let me just stop there then. Let's just look at these, this, this passage just for a few moments. What a very strong statement from Jesus. Jesus, although connecting with Peter, having this great conversation, and Peter is very close to him, he has to challenge him and stop him in the strongest terms, calling him Satan. One minute he's saying, I'm, I'm going to use you, Peter, on this walk. We're going to build my church. And then next minute he's saying, whoa, get behind me, Satan. Such strong language. I can imagine Peter being taken aback by that and being upset by this kind of language. But Jesus had to make it very clear to Peter because although Peter has had this revelation from God that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of the living God, it is at that moment in Peter's life an intellectual truth. This revelation has not dropped... Peter's heart because at that moment in time Peter is still living with his needs first living with his thoughts and his ambitions first using his worldly wisdom and not putting God first and Peter obviously wants to protect Jesus but he's doing it through his worldly eyes and Jesus quickly puts him right it's not about your plans Peter It's not about what you want, Peter. It's about putting God first. The lesson took Peter many years to understand. He certainly, I think, didn't get it until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But that intellectual revelation did drop into Peter's heart. And when you begin to read the letters that Peter wrote, you understand that he got it in the end. And Jesus reinforces this message in the next few verses. Can we read verses 24 to 27? Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Thank you, Liz. Let me explain further here. Jesus makes four declarations. He makes four statements That if we take time to understand, if we take what Jesus has just said here, understand it and take it into our hearts, it will change our lives. Number one, deny yourself. Now, understand me, self-denial is not about making life difficult for yourself. It's not about, you know, making things so difficult, hoping to impress God. It's not about wearing a rough hair shirt so it irritates you all the while. Just so you can remember, oh, you know, I'm doing this for God. I'm doing this for you, God. It's not about not taking sugar in your tea. Or even worse, not taking sugar in your coffee. Just to try and impress God. God's not impressed with things like that. It's not about denying yourself any luxury to try and prove how pious you are. Jesus is basically saying to Peter and the rest of the disciples, 
look guys, if it is God's will for me to go to Jerusalem and be crucified, so be it. I am here to do God's will, whatever that may be. Jesus is putting God first. And he's saying to these young men that followed him, you must do the same. To be my disciple, you must, you must deny yourself. Lay down your own ambitions. Lay down your pride. Lay down your hopes and dreams. And put God first. Because when you do that, when you put God first, he will direct you in such a way that your worldly hopes... Your dreams, your ambitions will seem of no consequence and they will fall far short of what God has got in store for you anyway. This is what it means to be a disciple. When we come to the point where we put God first and whatever happens to me is unimportant, then we actually find a release of the pressure of trying to succeed in this world. We find our comfort... Our wealth, our pleasure, our destiny, our purpose in life in doing what God wants us to do. Number two, take up your cross. Die to yourself. There's a lot of confusion about this uh, passage. I have heard people say many times, you know, oh, I'm suffering from this ailment or that ailment. I'm suffering from arthritis. I know how painful that can be. Oh, but, but that must be my cross I have to bear. That's not your cross. That's just arthritis. I've heard people say, my (laughs) mother-in-law, it's the cross I have to bear. No, she may be a cross mother-in-law, but that's not your cross. Your cross, what does it mean? Peter is saying, uh, sorry, Jesus is saying to Peter, unless you take up the very thing that you are telling me to lay down, You can never be my disciple. Well, the disciples understood one thing about the cross. Whenever they saw a man carrying a cross, it was a one-way journey. They were not coming back again. They carrying a cross meant humiliation, and it led to death. Which is the equivalent of digging your own grave. But you see, the cross in the life of Jesus was the sign of his ultimate obedience to to his father. Now, many of us know the story of Jesus on the night that he was betrayed. He had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, and he took Peter and James and John a little bit further on. And Jesus became more sorrowful, and it says in the Bible, until the point of death. Matthew 26, verse 39 says this. He went a little farther and fell on his knees and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will. And Jesus is basically saying, If there's any other way for men and women, for boys and girls to be reconciled to you, God, without me going through this pain and suffering... Then take this cup from me, but not my will. I want to do it your way. I'm putting you first, God. But that cross, that rugged, rough-hewn cross that Jesus carried, the cross that Jesus' battered and bruised body was nailed to, that cross that stood tall 
and high in humiliation and pain and ultimate death. That cross was the ultimate obedience to God. And Jesus is asking each and every one of us to take up our cross, whatever that may mean to us. And in doing so, we are proclaiming, not my will, but yours be done. Through thick and thin, through good times and bad, through the ease and the hardship, your will be done. When it breaks my heart and makes me weep, even then, God, your will be done. I heard this great quote. God won't teach you anything new until your obedience is up to date. Are you obedient? Are you putting God first? The third point, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. Follow Jesus and demote yourself. Our own agenda must be dropped to follow God's agenda. Get behind Jesus and follow him. Don't try and push your ideas, your agenda to the forefront. The problem is that many of us, I've got to hold my hand up there as well, many of us want to retain some control of our lives. But when we demote ourselves, follow Jesus and let him show the way, how liberating is that? When we let God be in charge, when we let God lead, when we know a higher power has his hand on our lives, we can sleep at night and not worry about the next day because he is in control. And that's an easy kind of thing to say. When you're going through some hard times, when you've got the news from the doctor that you did not want to hear, it's hard at times. But when you know that he is in control, it gives us a liberation. When we let God be in charge. I heard another great quote from Henry Drummond, a Scottish businessman and preacher. He said this, I want you to know that the entrance fee to heaven is nothing. But the subscription is everything you've got. So we get into heaven free. It's by grace. Because Jesus Christ died on that cross for us. If we acknowledge Jesus, we can get into heaven free. But if we put God first in our lives, it will cost us everything we have. Why do we try and push ahead of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords? What can we do but give everything to him? Finally, point number four. For whoever desires his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Decide to lose your life for his sake. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary pioneer to China, said this. The secret of a changed life is discovering it is an exchanged life. Well, if you hand over your life to Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ will hand his life over to you. You find life in all its fullness, in all its abundance. We then live in the fullness of his life and his activity within us. This is a connection worth making. I heard a story of a young man. Um, He was a businessman, a very successful businessman, had quite a lot of wealth. Lovely home, lovely family, lovely car. He had everything that the world thought was brilliant. 
but he still felt empty inside. And he heard somebody talking about Jesus Christ. And so he said, all right, God, God, what must I do? What must I do to get that fulfillment in life? What must I do? And God said to him, well, give me your life. So he said, right, God, there's my life. What must I do now? He said, well, give me your family. God, there's my family. Take it. What must I do now? Your wealth. Oh, you've got my wealth. You can have it, Lord. You can have it. What now? He said, everything you've got. You can have everything I've got. All my wealth, all my ambitions, all my status. You've got it, God. I'm empty. What must I do now? And God said, look after these for me. And that's what happens when we put God first. It's not that he doesn't want us to have these things. But when we put God first, we get things in the right priority. Four points. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Jesus. Lose your life. Is that the kind of discipleship we are interested in? Is that the depth of connection you want to make with God? Because that is the depth that Jesus is talking about here. Now those points may seem very daunting very difficult to do. So on a practical level, how can we do? What can we do to help ourselves put God first and live as disciples like Jesus explained in these passages? Well, one practical thing is we need to be intentional in connecting with like-minded people. Connect with people who are on the same journey. People who can offer you help and support. People who are going through or have just been through the same life issues. Connect with people in a small group. Small groups don't just offer a place for people to go to, to chat and pray. But small groups are about people doing life together, living life together, supporting one another. When a group of people come together with the intention to put God first, something powerful happens people often go to small groups with a need we've been running me and Liz have been running small groups really for the last 25 years and we've seen people come in in into our small groups with real deep needs but when they begin to praise and worship Jesus they often find they bring a solution to somebody else's need if you truly want to deepen your connection with Jesus, it is very, very difficult to do it alone. We know that the Bible says that the devil is like a, a, a prowling lion. He's just waiting to isolate you from the pack, from the herd. If he can get you alone, he's got you. Small groups offer safety and security. Now, some people have got the wrong impression about small groups. Some may think, well, I, I don't need to go to a small group. I'm all right. I have family and friends that I, I connect with. I don't need to uh, connect with anyone because I am happy. Well, that may be the case. And I'm glad for you. But are you putting God first? Does God want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and in obedience follow Jesus by joining a small group so that you can become a blessing to others who are less fortunate, who don't have friends, who don't have many uh, people they come into contact with, who don't have family to connect with. You may just be the right connection for somebody going through a really tough time. 
You might be just the right connection to turn somebody's life around. We see this so often in small groups. Small groups help to assist integration into church life. People need to connect quickly with others. It is often said that if somebody comes to a new church and doesn't relate to at least seven people, they are not likely to remain for long. As the church grows, you would think it would be easier to meet and connect with people, but often it is more difficult. People can feel lost in a larger church. So small groups allows people to become rooted into the church. I was uh, talking with uh, um, Sue Buckley, who's uh, a small group leader in Ilkeston, and she just shared... With me, a story of when she became a Christian. She had a real, real conversion, and, and she, but she didn't have anybody to take to church. So she sat down with the Yellow Pages, and she just got a list of churches out of the Yellow Pages. And she went to the first church. She went. It was an, just happened to be an Anglican church, and she went in. Nobody spoke to her. Nobody welcomed her. She sat down. She got out. Nobody spoke to her, and off she went. So she said, "God, that's not right. I, I want to connect with people. I, you know." So I'll try the next church on the list. And it happened to be a Methodist church. And she went into this church and she said to the person on the door, hello, welcome. She says, I'm new here. Is there anybody, I don't know what I'm doing, is there anybody I could sit with? And this woman says, ooh, you want to sit with somebody? Ooh, I don't know. Uh, just wait there, I'll, I'll go and see. So she came back and she says, no, I can't find anybody. I suppose you'll have to sit with me. Now you think, well, what kind of welcome is that? You see, small groups help you to become rooted into the church, to feel belong and feel valued, to find a place where their gifts can be used. Now, this is not always possible on a Sunday morning or a Sunday evening. How do you learn to speak in tongues? How do you learn to prophesy or learn how to use other gifts of the Spirit? How do you learn to pray? How do you learn to pray out loud? Well, small groups should be a place where you feel safe enough to step out in faith and have a go. A place where you're active, actively encouraged to have a go. And if you search the internet for small groups, just go on the internet, search for testimony small groups, you'll get hundreds back. And this is one testimony I've found on the, uh, uh, on the internet. And it says this. I absolutely need my small group. We study the Bible together, discuss how it applies to our life and pray for one another. The Christian life is hard to live on your own. It is much easier when you have good friends living life with you. They have become my best friends. Friends that accept me even when I struggle. We laugh and cry together, support and encourage one another. Carl Bloomington. Well, I believe that there are some people here that God is really speaking to about small groups and making those all important connections. No matter what your initial thoughts are, oh, I'm just too busy, what, what can I do, I'm just too busy. Oh, I, couldn't, I could never lead a small group because I, I don't know the Bible well enough. Or, or, or what will people think? What, 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 I don't know what to do. But whatever the excuse, please pray about it. Lay it down. Demote yourself and promote Jesus. Put God first in your life and follow Jesus because I know he will lead you to a small group. I'm praying that some of these younger people will say to themselves, well, I meet with my mates and connect with my peer group anyway, and I'll continue to do that because it naturally happens. But I will decide to be intentional. 
and join a small group. And I'll be decide to join a small group that perhaps got older people in. So I can bring some energy and diversity into that small group and learn from the wisdom in that group. Because it's not about me. It's about putting God first. It's about his kingdom come. Multi-generational small groups is an expression of God's kingdom. Let me tell you, if any of you young men or young women are are considering ever leading a church, then cut your teeth in small groups. Because if you can't manage with 12 to 15, you'll never manage with 100, 200, 500 people. It's about making those connections. Jesus showed us a great example of what a small group can achieve. That small group of disciples changed the world. Now, I really, truly believe that small groups will not only change our church, but will impact and change our communities. Arena Church, it is time to connect. Connect deeper with God and to connect closer with each other. Amen.